After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Ricky DeSoleil is the executive fashion director at Vogue.com. She was baptized in the fashion industry and is creating a new digital legacy at Vogue. Ricky, we met in Paris, actually, I think, with Irene Neuwirth. We did. And I think we went to the world's best restaurant. Was it spring? I think it was. You know, Irene has such a knack for picking places that I have never been to (laughs) and can never remember the name of, but they're always delicious meals and they always have good company. I think we immediately connected because you have a great connection to the South. I do. I do. My mother's family is originally from South Carolina. And my parents moved down there about 10 years ago to Hilton Head. So you're, and your mom's not just kind of from South Carolina. She's very from South Carolina. <laughs> I mean, it's hundreds of years, correct? She has long lineage to South Carolina, but actually she did not originally grow up there. She was born in New Jersey and grew up moving her whole life. But my grandfather retired quite early and he retired in his 50s down in Hilton Head. So y'all spend a lot of time there as, as a little girl, I would imagine. We have growing up and visiting. We used, I was born in Washington, D.C., and we used to get in the car and we'd drive the eight hours down to Hilton Head. <laughs> but it was worth it. And we'd, have, we'd rent houses with friends, and my parents eventually bought places down there. And they knew to retire places where their children and now grandchildren want to visit them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And those beaches are great for it. That's so nice. And did y'all go for Thanksgiving? We did not. They actually came here, um, oh, nice. which made our lives easier not having to get on planes with two under the age of three. I was going to say, you have little people. I have a son who turns, let's see, three in February and a daughter turns two in July. So my hands are oh, full. Oh, wow. I have a bunch of colleagues at work with that with that arrangement as well. And I think we laughed so hard on Black Friday at work because all of the mothers were there first thing in the morning. <laughs> Because everybody just could not wait to get back to work. (laughs) It's so funny you say that. The return to office, you know, people have been quite slow here in New York. And I was the first person back in because I felt it was so much easier to be removed from the house. As much as I love them, it's not the most conducive for a work environment. So It's not that easy. Yeah. So, Ricky, your, your real name is Eleanor Richards. Were you Ricky from the beginning? I was Ricky from the beginning. Oddly enough, my mother's legal name when she was born was Ricky, but with a Y. And she hated it. Yes. She hated it so much that she (laughs) legally changed it to Eleanor, went and named me Eleanor and called me Ricky. So that's um, so funny. The twisted logic. But yes, I was often, you know, when you're in kindergarten and the moms just go through the list and sort of invite all the boys to the birthday parties, I was always showing up at birthday party, the all boys birthday parties. Um, (laughs) So this name, (laughs) this name has had its challenges. (laughs) They all do. But you do sort of become your name, I think. My little girl's Fidelia, but she's called Fifi. And I think uh, maybe a little bit in the same way, it was so hard to call an infant such a big name, you know, that you you really do have to shorten it or do something with it. It totally totally sticks. There was a phase, I think, when I was leaving boarding school and going to college that I decided I was going to switch to Eleanor. It lasted like two weeks. But I've decided, actually, (laughs) you'll love this. I've decided that 
this stage of my life, I'm still Ricky DeSole, but my married last name is Webster. And someday I'm going to be Eleanor Webster. And she's fabulous. Whoa. And She, she wears, is fabulous. She wears pearls and she is, you know, has it all together. <laughs> I'm not there yet, but Eleanor Webster is waiting for me in the wings. That is hilarious. And I think you definitely should make reservations with that. That's maybe <laughs> an, a more understanding that people say Webster. Yeah, got it. El- Eleanor Webster. <laughs> Exactly. I did. I got married. It will be 10 years ago this July. And I had told my husband I would change my last name to Webster. And I resisted because I grew up in Italy and DeSole is sort of the last Italian name that I, I still carry. Hmm. I want to hear about your dad and your mom and how they met and sort of it's such an unlikely story, I think. So my father is 100% Italian. He was the son of an Italian military general, grew hmm. up moving throughout Italy his whole life. And he got a scholarship to Harvard Law School out of college. He had gone to university in Rome. And he came to the States for univer- for law school. And after law school, moved to Washington, D.C. And he met my mother on a blind date. And as the story goes, my dad was dating 10 other women at the same time. <laughs> like uh, a good Italian. <laughs> like a good Italian does. And uh, shortly, they met and married within three months, if I'm remembering correctly. And as my dad says, he sort of looked around and thought, she's the one. (laughs) So it was quite fast, but they waited, after getting married, they waited eight years before having my sister and 10 before having me. So it was was fast to marriage, but a little longer to children. How did fashion come about? Because you hadn't, I mean, other than growing up in Italy, he didn't have that in his family history. Definitely not. Right. Uh, So my dad is a lawyer by background. He was the tax lawyer to the Gucci family um, in in the (laughs) 80s, a story that has been made very public um, (laughs) recently with the House of Gucci movie (laughs) that I actually watched with my dad uh, last week. And, and were you were you pulling your hair out? Was he was he freaking out? Uh, like this is not true. I think he was just sort of he was so quiet, sort of taking it all in, thinking this is not how you know this is not <laughs> reality. This is not what happened. Actually, Tom Ford rather brilliantly wrote his own review for Airmail this week. That it is, was hilarious. Is worth a read, but um, <laughs> but it very much does. It tells a sort of fake version of the story. But Dad was the tax lawyer to the Gucci family, and hmm. as the story unfolds, I do recommend everyone reads the book because that is much closer to the truth. But that's that's really where his connection to fashion began. Um, and then the story certainly spiraled from there. And did they live in Florence from early on? I mean, is that he went straight from Harvard Law School to working in Florence for the Gucci's or? No. So dad had was living in Washington, D.C. as a lawyer, working for you know many different clients, and then continued to work in Washington as he worked with the Gucci family. And then we moved to Greenwich, Connecticut when I was five, um, and dad had taken over at Gucci America and was working in New York. We were living in Greenwich. My mother, who had been a branch manager at IBM, uh, my mother loved to work. She still talks about to this day the team that she led there and had quite a, quite a big career. I think that was a big reason why they waited as long as they did to have children. Mm. And then ultimately, when the pressures came to be, my mother made a decision that she was going to move to Connecticut. They were doing long distance for a while. And then she stopped working when we moved to Connecticut. And then the Gucci, Gucci story, we moved to Italy in 1994, when Gucci was still bankrupt, as I understand it. And how old were you, Ricky, at the time? I was eight. Wow. And we had, you know, we moved there. And I remember my parents saying, oh, this, this is only going to last a year. 
And that first year was amazing because we traveled everywhere. My dad was working very hard. My mother would pack me and my sister up in the car and we would just drive all over Europe. And we would, it was, it was wild how much we saw. I remember we had just gotten to Florence and my mom took us to the Ponte Vecchio where all of the, it's famous for having all of the jewelry shops that sell gold. And my mom took me and my sister to buy a gold ring and sort of said, never forget this moment, this year that we lived in Florence. And, <laughs> and it's a little woven be, uh, gold ring. And I have it to this day sort of thinking, but, you know, again, we really thought it was going to be a quick, quick trip. And then as the story would have it, the, the success that the dad and Tom found ultimately kept us there for much longer. We lived in Florence for five years. And as the company grew, we eventually moved to London because the airport in Florence was so small um, that it was actually quite hard to get in and out of. Um, and the yeah. schedule was not a sufficient, the flight schedules were not sufficient. So London ended up becoming home. And so did you go to the American school there in Florence? I did. I went to the American International School of Florence, which at the time was 180 students from preschool through 12th grade. So wow. as you can imagine, there were about nine kids per class. And the majority <laughs> of them did not English was not their first language. Right, so I right. was taking English classes with the majority of kids who English was a second language. Needless to say, uh, it was a wonderful education from a cultural perspective. I'm not sure my actual academic <laughs> education was uh, so strong. So my parents shipped me and my sister off to boarding school when we were starting high school. What do you remember wearing? I mean, eight years old is sort of like a I think as you're you're just starting to be really conscious of fashion or of what other people are wearing. Do you remember what you wore and how that changed when you got to Florence? Of course I remember. <laughs> so I, you know, Connecticut, I remember we were quite preppy. And then we moved to Florence and that's where I was my mother's quite strict and very much a by the rules person and <laughs> uh, very formal. You know, she, my friends were never allowed to call her by her first name. It was always Mrs. DeSole. And, oh, I love it. Uh, and, and all of that. But the one thing my mother let us do growing up when we moved to Italy was we could take a day off school to go to the Gucci shows. And again, I think it was sort of part of the education, but also not knowing how long this was going to last. And <laughs> and I just remember as a kid, I wasn't allowed to sit at the shows. I had to work backstage. Uh, and I am so, I still to this day, I'm quite short. I'm 5'3", and I was extra short in those days. And my job that I was given backstage was to help the models with their shoes because it was low to the ground. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but I remember being backstage and being totally taken by it. And it was uh, Tom's 1995 show with all the patent leather oh um, horse bit the uh, shoes and the velvet hip huggers. And I remember Demi Moore being backstage for some of the shows. And I just, I wanted to be Kate Moss. I actually think I backstage <laughs> told Kate Moss, you know, she, I had always heard that she had freckles and I have freckles. So I sort of thought, oh, well, since we both have freckles, I'm obviously going to look like Kate Moss when I'm older. Obviously. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> Did not you do happen. kind of look like you're Ricky there. Yeah, I have to oh, say. You're, you're so kind, Laura. You're so kind. Um, but I, but it really influenced me. And then at the same time, I think Clueless was – I remember Clueless playing a big role. So there was something about that yellow tartan miniskirt. I don't know. So you sort of put all these things together. And I remember loving skirt and jacket suits, sort of skirt suits at a very young age. Yeah. White eyeliner was quite popular. I would not – I'd wait <laughs> until I got to school to put it on. I you know, I love of, it. it was wild. But yes, I remember it very distinctly. And I remember stealing sort of things from my mother's closet from those early Gucci collections and, and feeling so great wearing them, even at that age. 
And tell me, and she really is a style icon herself. Tell me a little bit about her style and, and what, do you have a favorite look of hers? Oh, my mother. It's, it's really amazing. And I, I actually wrote a story about it for Vogue.com, but when I was reflecting for that piece, I realized that Italy was the moment when my mother's style really came to the forefront. And I think part of it is that we moved to Italy. My mother did not speak Italian. In fact, none of us spoke Italian because my father was so proud to have come to America and become an American citizen and to have learned English himself. But he would only speak English with us. So we moved, you know, he never thought we were going to move to Italy. It was not part of his plan. (laughs) So we show up in Italy and it's like, really? You couldn't have set us up to <laughs> succeed here? So we all learned it on the ground. And I was so young that when you're at that age and you're at school, you pick it up on the playground and, and you sort of have a skill for it. But my older sister and my mother were a little slower to it. And I think Florence is quite a small town. Mm-hmm, um, totally. Society is quite closed. And so I think it was a real, she's very open about it, but it was a real culture shift for her. And she was so engaged in Greenwich with the community, particularly around our school. So I think my mother sort of turned to fashion during that time. She looks great in clothes. And so obviously, you know, having access to those collections um, that Tom was creating. And I just, I watched the way she put, she's so effortless. My mother has silver hair. She's always had gray hair my whole life, Hmm. I think. She's had sort of a gray silver streak since she was a teenager. And it was always her signature accessory. And I think she liked that, you know, everyone who's chasing youth is trying to cover up a lot of those things. And she always really embraced them. And the sort of juxtaposition of being so low maintenance while wearing, you know, the latest runway collections that I always admired about her. Is there a moment or an outfit that you remember her being her most beautiful? I mean, I have to say it's toss-up. I would say the Gwyneth Paltrow made famous the red velvet tuxedo. My mother has that tuxedo from that (laughs) same year, yes. And she brings it out almost every Christmas. It's sort of her look now. But she looks phenomenal in it, that blue button-down shirt with the suit. She looks great in and that, How gorgeous. It's so good. And then she also has, um, from another of Tom's early collections, a pair of pink crystal pants that <laughs> are so over the top, but somehow she makes look quite effortless. And then I'd say actually the most memorable was my high, no, my college graduation. Georgetown, the night before graduation, does this big party for the graduating class at Union Station. And it's black tie. And my mother shows up in Alexander McQueen pantaloons. And <laughs> I remember thinking she looks so great. And also, really, mom? Like everyone is wearing a traditional ball gown <laughs> and you have to come out wearing these bizarre pantaloons. balloon pants. Exactly. <laughs> and she looks so great. But it was sort of that thing of like, okay, cool, mom. <laughs> so that was, that was the most memorable for me just because she stood out so much. And it's one thing when you're surrounded by fashion people, but it's another when you're in a, right. you know, Washington, D.C. Georgetown parents. Right, right. <laughs> And she also has committed to her look like she's she's I mean, I think looking at pictures from the last 20 years, like her her style really hasn't changed. She's really confident in who she is, it seems. She is. You know, she does not buy. She really re-wears a lot of outfits, mm-hmm. which is, again, another thing. She's not about buying new things every season. Um, she really digs back into her closet. And I think I've learned a lot in that buy things that you love and it's okay to wear them many times over. So I think that's what's kept her style quite consistent is that actually you'll see her rewear those pieces for for many years. 
Any other style advice that she's given you that you've that you've used over and over? Oh, the one I always impart on people is buy the outfit. So my mom used to take us <laughs> shopping. And again, it was always with a purpose, right? She's not one for shopping just for an activity. It's, you know, you're starting a new mm. job, you need a new suit. You know, if there's a particular event, you know, she's, she's very focused in that respect. And she always said, if you found a skirt that came with the matching top, buy both because otherwise you've now bought a skirt that you don't know what to wear with. So therefore you don't wear it mm-hmm. at all. You have to buy something else. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so that that's the one that I love. And, and I think about every time I'm in a dressing room trying on an outfit. Don't don't skimp on buying the coordinating item. I, I need to um, make a note of that and put it inside our <laughs> dressing rooms because it drives me crazy. And you'll go to the floor and you'll say, where's the top that goes with this? Exactly. Oh, we sold it. Exactly. (laughs) We didn't really touch on your dad, his style. Had he always been stylish? I mean, I think Italians are pretty debonair from birth probably, but did he get more into to style or to, or, or was he sort of always the same with his look? He's pretty consistent. I would say he loves a blue blazer. I remember my mother sort of yelling at him when it'd be really hot to take off the blazer, but he wouldn't. It's like the thing is attached to him. Or we'd be on a, <laughs> a plane, tra- as my husband calls it, de sole casual. Because there's casual and then That's there's- not intimidating at all. <laughs> there's casual and then there's de sole casual, which in my dad's book <laughs> is a pair of jeans, but also with a blazer. So I love it. Yeah. Well, I bet he fits in really well in the South. He does. I think he's really, you know, it's funny where they live is so famous for golf. Uh, Hilton Head has the the tournament every year. And so people make this assumption that they move there for the golf. My father hates They're the tennis, game. right? Aren't they big tennis players? My mother's a big tennis player and a golfer, but my father's a very big sailor. Sailing has ah. played a very important role when we lived in Washington. He was always sailing on the Chesapeake Bay. In fact, he was sailing both the day I was born and the day my <laughs> sister was born. <laughs> I love it. That's um, how they did it back then. I know. I don't think my mom loved it, uh, <laughs> but it it certainly kept him busy and, and entertained. Um, so then when we moved to Italy, sailing was always his outlet and became mine. And actually, that's how my husband and I met. We met on the sailing team at Georgetown. Aww. Actually, funnily enough, every Wednesday is race night at the South Carolina Yacht Club where they spend their time. <laughs> And that was his sport and his thing. And then my mother, a few years ago, decided she wanted to partake in Wednesday night race night. So she got a group of girlfriends together, and they have a girls' boat that goes out and competes. Oh, that's so neat. Well, so your childhood sounded sounds so interesting, and I know y'all traveled a ton. I, I can't. I think it would be hard to tear myself away from life in Florence to go to boarding school in the states. How did how did that come about? Kicking and screaming, I imagine. Actually, the real kicking and screaming was leaving Connecticut. And then my mother saved the hate letter that I wrote her when she dragged us <laughs> from, from Greenwich, um, saying that she had ruined our lives and taken us from all of our friends. <laughs> uh, what I gained was I never expected the experiences I had in Italy. And to this day, they are so special. And I can't describe what it was like to grow up at that time in Florence and living around yeah. um, every, And also the freedom my sister and I had to walk around. We lived downtown for two years, and then we lived out in the countryside for three. And just we get to explore and, and have a freedom that maybe we didn't have um, stateside. So, yes, when the time came that my family was moving, we were leaving Florence regardless. So my parents were moving to London, so there was going to be a change. My older sister had on her own made the decision that she wanted to go back to the States for boarding school. 
she's very independent. I think she felt from an education perspective, it was the right move for her. And the fact that my sister was there made it a much easier decision for me. We had looked at, my mother went to a boarding school, although she was a day student outside of Washington, D.C., called Madeira. And mm-hmm. it's an all-girls boarding school in McLean, Virginia. And my Where m- Julia Reed went. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, he was my good buddy. Oh, and a, and a friend of my mother's, as I understand it, too. A wonderful person. Aww. And uh, so many great books. Well, she, so yes, so my mother had said to my sister, you can apply to any boarding school you want, but if it's an all-girl school, I ask that it'll only be Madeira, (laughs) which is fair, totally fair. My sister applied everywhere, and she made the decision to go to Madeira, and I followed her there. And my sister and I are total opposites. You could not find two people more different. We get along very well, better now than in those days. But being near family made a big difference. And did you know early on that you wanted to work in fashion? I mean, was that always sort of your ultimate goal? I did. You know, my parents had a, had a rule that I was not allowed to study fashion. They felt that at yeah, school I was I agree. meant to study other things and that internships were my opportunity to gain more exposure about what I wanted to do professionally. So where did you intern? (laughs) I interned, let's see. My most memorable internship was the year that the Gucci group brought Stella McCartney into the fold. And I was Mm. Stella's intern the year she was setting up, the summer she was setting up her business. Oh, wow. And there were about five (laughs) employees. It was amazing. And so, you know, the intern did it all. And I, I just remember being, I admire Stella so much. Those early collections, they had instilled to this day, but she has such energy and the cult of personality around her and, and all of it. So I that was so memorable. And Stella gave me so much um, visibility into what it takes. So that was great. That was in London. So I would spend the school year in the States, in Virginia, and then I would go back to London in the summers. So I interned with Stella in the PR team. I interned at Gucci. I worked for a woman named Lisa Sheik, and she was the head of communications for Gucci globally based out of London, and I was her intern. And Lisa was tough as, is tough as nails. And I learned a lot from her. I did all the press clippings and, you know, supported that team. I have young women asking all the time for advice on on internships and, you know, what they should do, where they should start. I'd love to hear what you, you would say. I think my, my advice is always kind of sounds like what you did is to work in all different parts of the industry because even if you hate it, you're it's going to push you closer to what it is you want to do. And, and I always say, this is probably not a nice thing to say, but I always say if, if you do that internship in PR, I can promise you you'll never work in PR again. <laughs> I did. Shockingly, I did. But yes, the beauty of an internship is it's three months. So, you know, you always know it's right. coming to an end. That's the brilliant thing, right? A job, job has less um, finite time period. So it was really, I completely agree with your philosophy there. I think it's try out as many different things. And while I was in D.C., the school that I went to was four days a week. And then on Wednesdays, they had a co-curriculum program, which is a big reason why I chose Madeira. And you work on Wednesdays. So my uh, junior year, I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked for Senator Blanche Lambert Lincoln from Arkansas. I, which was incredible in the PR department in her office. (laughs) So again, related. And then I had worked at the Discovery Networks, uh, which was based in Bethesda, 
Maryland, um, which was close to my school. I worked in their PR department. I worked on a show called Animal Rescue. And so I think having understanding communication through different businesses as well was super helpful for me. And then probably the most informative that set me off on the path that I'm currently on was my junior year in college. I interned at Vogue. And that is where I was exposed to the, to the world of Condé Nast. What was one of your more challenging moments in your internships? Sometimes our, our biggest role was really making sure that we got samples to and from as quickly as humanly possible. And that's what I remember. It was so hot those summers in New York. It was you know, probably 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and you're sort of flinging those garment bags that are made of some very flammable material. And you're just sort of (laughs) (laughs) sweating buckets and and really just trying to get in. But I'd say what I remember the most was always being present and sort of trying to anticipate people's needs as much as possible. And that was really the role that I felt I was able to do through a lot of my internships was sort of show up and be there when, when someone needs something and sort of be the first person to say, I'm here and be really open to any task. No task is too small. And also, I think it allowed me to realize what I did and did not enjoy doing. That's pretty clear from the beginning, isn't it? Yes. yes. (laughs) For me, it always was. And so from that first internship at Vogue, was it the path for sure? I mean, did you ever question it or it was you you were just all in? Oh, I totally questioned it. I think (laughs) I think I thought everyone was nuts. (laughs) No, I question I questioned it, but I was still taken with it. And I think there was a curiosity to sort of think, okay, if this is what I see here, what would it look like if I was in that role? And and then always sort of seeing the path that I wanted to take next. And I, so was it perfect? No, but I had such a curiosity for what it would be like if I was in a different role than the one I was in. While I have been at Condé Nast this time around 11 years, you know, I've had several roles through that time. And I think that's what sort of that curiosity to, to see many facets of the business and of of this industry has been fascinating. And that started from my internships all the way up. And then you graduated from Georgetown and your first job was at Vanity Fair. Is that right? It was, yes. As a fashion assistant. And that was in New York? That was in New York. We were at Four Times Square. You know, when I talk about getting my internships, obviously I had a big leg up. I had grown up in the industry and had wonderful connections. And as I, my father always said to me, you know, the can make the introduction, but it's on you to get the job and it's on you to do the job well. And also don't embarrass us. Ex- oh, yes. Actually, it's <laughs> right. my mother, My mother. speaking of my mother, she's not one for long lectures. And when I went off to boarding school, she didn't, you know, give me a list of things you can and can't do. She just said, I don't, I don't want a phone call. And that was her way of saying, I don't want you to, ma- you know, that's it. I don't want a phone no. call. <laughs> and however I, I interpreted I that was up to me, <laughs> but that was sort of the only to-do list that she gave me. Do you remember what you wore on your first day at Vanity Fair? I do not remember what I wore, but I remember I worked in the fashion closet and there were about three of us in there, no windows. You know, we were there unpacking and packing trunks all day, every day. And I remember this Oscar de la Renta white and green dress coming in. And it was so, it sort of defined my taste since I love an A-line dress. (laughs) I love you know, very romantic silhouettes. And I remember trying it on and mm. it just stuck with me. And I thought, oh, I, I love this. So while I don't remember <laughs> what I wore, I remember that dress so distinctly. And, and my fellow fashion assistant is a gentleman named Sam Brokema, 
who he's currently the fashion market director at InStyle, and our careers have grown together, and we just had such Aww. fun dressing up and and playing in that closet. So, and then you went on to work at Vogue, and then Prada, and and women's wear W and then landed back at Vogue. What do you think it is that keeps calling you back to Vogue? Probably my big boss and the the colleagues. <laughs> I would say my colleagues here are incredible and everywhere I've worked, but the commitment and the follow through and just being around people that work so hard and genuinely I enjoy being around and I enjoy having meals. You know, we travel together twice a year for the shows and you really spend two and a half weeks of your life in cars, having meals, you know, you're, yeah. stu- you're glued to these people. And, and I really, <laughs> I enjoy it. And, and every time I'm traveling with them, I'm reminded how lucky I am to work with such an intelligent um, and thoughtful group. So it's really the colleagues that have kept me here and kept me coming back. We had a great interview with Tani a year or so ago and heard great Polly Mellon stories from Ann Mashburn. But I don't think we've talked to anybody about the present kind of era at Vogue and and what's happening in the new digital era. Can you talk about how it's changing and um, how it's changing for the better and, and what what you see, how you see it evolving? Sure. And just to say, Tony Goodman was my first boss. So my that's awesome. My internship, <laughs> that internship, my junior year of college, I was Tony's intern. And Tony is, wow. as you well know, the kindest, warmest, mm. you know, there was such a, in those days, fashion has gotten much friendlier. And in those days, it was still uh, not so friendly. But Tani was the exception. And she was so gracious and, you know, said thank you. And you could tell, you know, she was tough yeah. and she had real vision. But the way that her demeanor and the way that she was to work for was is truly the reason why I pursued working at Vogue later in my career. So I owe a lot to I Tani. I love to hear that. I really yeah, do. Yeah, I love that. But it has certainly changed, you know, both in location. We used to be in Four Times Square. And I remember there were rumors of Condé Nast moving downtown. I used to live on the Upper East Side and sort of thinking, oh, I won't be there when that happens. And then sure enough, we moved downtown. <laughs> I'm still here. And my years at W um, was when W was still owned by Condé Nast. So even though it was a shift um, it was still within the same house of Conde. But it has evolved. And I, even for my own career, I moved to the digital side right before the pandemic. It was December 2019. Anna had asked me to take on this role. And I sort of thought, oh, digital. You know, it was sort of for me, I, I hadn't touched it other than, you know, writing stories here and there. And at the time, I sort of thought I was going to learn a lot. And then the pandemic hit and everything changed. And all fashion, you know, we were all glued to our phones and our computers in a way we hadn't been before and really charged us all with being much more innovative. And for me, it was also looking at the data, right? When you put together print, it's beautiful, but it's quite subjective. And the sign of success was if your peers liked it and um, the internet talked about it and your advertisers were happy. But in the digital world, it's really about the readers and seeing what they're responding to and what they're connecting to. And I find it quite addicting. And so weird. It's so weird to see it in real time, too, I imagine. It is. It is. And things that surprise you. Um, Liana Statenstein, who's a brilliant writer on our team, wrote a piece recently about ugly shoes, the, uh, the return of ugly shoes. And just the <laughs> traffic was insane. You're sort of thinking, but they're really ugly. But it resonated. And, and I love that. And I love knowing that. I have a funny story. I, I had a meeting actually at Vogue, and I think it maybe was with Emily. I, maybe it was, maybe she was already gone by then, but I can't remember. 
It was the day that the Kanye, Kim and Kanye issue landed. So the first one. The wedding dress. Yes. And and it was like a really big deal. You know, people were up in arms. It was like such a crazy thing. And I, we were waiting in the lobby um, for our appointment and there's a, a newsstand down there. And Anna's assistant came down. <laughs> and while we were waiting and asked the guy at the counter, she said, you know, basically like boss wants to know kind of, you know, how's it going? You know, basically like how's the newsstand, you know, are, are people, are people, are you selling it hand over fist? And um, I thought it was, it, it was such a hilarious thing because you just would, it just would never happen anymore ever again, you know, but to actually witness that moment in real life was so bizarre. I love it. I love it. There's the data straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I really miss that newsstand. I remember it so distinctly, the one at Four Times Square. Yeah, it's really changed. And I think it's changed in so many ways. And I, you know, print is so important. I think, you know, there's always a lot of chatter about print dying. I think print is still very relevant. I think, you know, we we see that. But as that continues, and, and certainly the mix from our advertising team is always changing. But I think it's about print remaining this very special product and what goes into print. I think the covers, I mean, look at the Kamala Harris cover and the conversation around it or Adele, our cover uh, last Oh my gosh. It matters who's on the cover of Vogue and people care and the surprise and the the commentary around it, I think is so relevant, but also how that story continues and how you translate those stories online and starting to think about stories as we do now, you know, before it was sort of print and digital and they were two separate beasts. And I think now really getting the teams, everyone that works here is really thinking, what does this look like in video? What does this look like in digital? What does this look like in social? And thinking about how we're showing up in all these places and not just in in print. So I think it's expanding on what we've always been doing and that continues to grow. You know, TikTok is obviously a big conversation around the office and uh, so many other platforms that are emerging and and the content generation. I mean, that's that's the other is the volume, right? Creating content for all of these many ways that people are consuming our content. Has your team gotten way bigger in the last two years? It has. Uh, when I took on this role, there were three of us. And now it's a team of eight. And they it's great. And they're amazing. And, and many of our editors who have joined from other teams within the magazine, but really making the move over to the digital side, and creating market work online. So we have a section in the magazine index, which were always our shopping pages, but what does that look like online? And with so many brands, and you must feel this at your own store, but you know there used to be sort of two times a year when new collections would show up in stores. And now it's like every day there's a collaboration, there's a drop, there's a, you know, there's always something. And, and so how are we responding to that? Because print lead times, obviously, you have to work within a certain schedule and the ability to highlight all of the amazing work that's being done in a very real time pace is what the team is there to respond to. In the office this week, we were talking about, we have a new member of our buying team. And I was talking about how I have such a hard time going to uh, at the end of a long seller on appointment and then having to do handbags at the end of the ready to wear appointment because my brain just can't process it all. It's like a completely different way of thinking. Um, and I know you covered accessories for a long time in your career and, and ready to wear. If you could only do one category for the rest of your career, would, what would it be? Jewelry. 
I love jewelry. <laughs> me too. Oh my gosh, Ricky, me too. <laughs> oh my goodness. I learned so much. So that's jewelry is just, it's so civilized, first of all. I mean, there's nothing better. <laughs> it makes you happy. And I love the industry and the jewelers themselves. I mean, Irene, obviously, who introduced us in the first place. They're so creative and they're so fun. And it lasts. And there's so, I learned a lot about jewelry through the um, Phyllis Posnick, who's a stylist that's worked yeah. at Vogue for, for a long time. She had such an eye for vintage jewelry and she taught me so much. I would call in pieces for her stories and she'd give me all the history. And, you know, sometimes I'd end up buying some of the pieces, which my husband was like, you have to stop doing this. <laughs> this is <laughs> not how this is meant to go. Um, and then Lynn, Lynn Yeager, who's another big contributor of ours, who yeah. is a expert in the field, as you all know. You know, so I've been able to learn from from these women who are who have taught me so much. And yeah, I just... I love it. And those are my favorite. I totally agree. My favorite shoots to style as well. Oh, and I bet they're hard, I would imagine. They are. They're harder to shoot jewelry than yes. yeah, during post-pandemic or during or whatever we are in still. But jewelry has been become such a completely different business for us, you know? And I don't know if it's it's their talismans, their things that make people feel happy and safe. And I don't know what it is, but it, it's completely different for us post-pandemic. I totally agree. And I think it was also... When I think of the pieces I cherish the most, they are ones that either my mother has passed down from her mother yeah. or from my father's mother, or things that I got when my children were born. I wear every day. Oh, yeah. Um, Jennifer Meyer has you know name plates, and I wear those every day. And my, my son pulls on them, and he knows the W is for <laughs> William and the C is for Clara. And, and so there's such meaning and purpose behind it. So speaking of children, how do you – I mean, how do you do this? <laughs> You're, you're so present every time I'm around you. You seem so engaged. I mean, how did you, how have you navigated that? You're so kind to say that. You know, there's, <laughs> there's a, a lot in the back end. It has added, you know, you're a mother. You, you figure it out. It's certainly a juggle. And the time, time management has never been as important as it is now. But my children taught me to prioritize. I think for so long, I said yes to so much throughout most of my career and you could go out every single night of the week doing a job like the mm -hmm. one I have. I'm, I'm sure you would say the same. And yeah. for so long, I, I loved it because it was a chance to connect with people in a less formal setting. You know, the exchanges that you have over dinner parties really allowed me to get to know industry players in a way that you don't maybe feel when you're doing a desk side appointment in the office. But when I had children, I really had to reflect on how I was spending my time and it took a, you know, there was always a bit of a balance. And then the pandemic hit and my daughter was born July, 2020. And so, you know, t timing is everything in life. And I was lucky to spend the, the first year of her life with her every day and not be out. Yeah. And I think my challenge coming out, you know, in a post-vaccine world is maintaining the balance, still being able to be present at those events that I really love. And I love spent, you know, so many people in the industry have become dear friends but also making sure that I'm home, home for dinner or able to put her to bed in a way that maybe I hadn't been for my son's first year. But it's, uh, there's, no easy, there's no easy recipe. Um, I do work with a lot of mothers. So you know, I have colleagues that are quite understanding. And then I also moved downtown in the middle of the pandemic, closer, closer to the <laughs> office. So I'm no longer commuting 40 minutes, but I have a 10-minute walk, which has made a huge difference. The incredible women at Vogue have such legacies of style or innovation. What do you want your legacy at Vogue to be? 
one of the things I did when I was at W, and W was amazing because it was probably the most creative um, time in my career. I got to work with Edward Enninful, who just enjoys fashion more than anyone, and he has so much fun with it. But while I was there, I watched what was happening in the art world with clubs. And I had gone to Stepano Tonki and Anna um, at the time and thought, we need a club. What does the Condé Nast Club look like? And I started something called Inside Fashion with Vogue and W. And it was the idea of taking that famed Neiman Marcus breakfast and bringing it to our readers, inviting individuals to come talk about fashion for a morning and meet the editors and hear the stories about what goes into the magazine. And from that, we grew memberships at Vogue. And I came back to start up something called Vogue 100, which was a membership, Vogue's first membership. And I think, again, my, I hope my legacy is sort of taking everything that Vogue is and finding new, new ways to communicate that, whether it's through a membership in a community of, of like-minded individuals that love Vogue, you know, online, digitally, how do we take the stories that we know and cherish in print, a section like Index, and how do you have that live online? And so really marrying everything that comes from our history, but also being able to bring that to the present. I mean, next up is you and Ivan doing NFTs. It comes up a lot. I, I cannot tell you how much <laughs> we talk about <laughs> NFTs. Um, and I think some of our sister publications... Irving, Irving Penn NFTs. <laughs> exactly. Some of our sister publications have done it. I know Vogue Singapore did an NFT cover for September, and they... They had a lot of success, and I think the New Yorker did it. So more to come in this space. Ricky, we ask a very important question. And now that I know that you went to Madeira, I'm really not sure that you went to prom. <laughs> did y'all have a prom? No. Uh, we did not. Did we? I, I think I went to a prom, though. I think I was invited by someone from a boys' school to go to a prom. Do you know what you wore? I don't. It was not a particularly <laughs> significant moment. You know what, Laura? Actually, I think I think we did have a prom. It was so bad though that I, I. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the best part. <laughs> actually, I'm now. I remember a picture. Okay, here we go. It's in my mind. I wore a very deep plunging black long dress that, frankly, I think I look terrible. And I remember a lot of hairspray in my hair and thinking, I hate the way that I look. So prom was not uh, the highlight of my... Tell me, tell me what you wore to your wedding. <laughs> Tom Ford made my dress. And I think Tom yeah. has been very vocal in saying that he hates doing brides. And even more, he hates <laughs> doing bridesmaids. Uh, but, he, oh, yeah. <laughs> but he very kindly did both. And I will never forget it because... I had opinions, which, you know, a designer hates. And I remember Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. I loved the column dress, the Givenchy dress that she wore that was a column with a a skirt on the back. And I had sort of Mm -hmm. said, Tom, you know, this is what I'm thinking. He made the dress and, you know, I thought I looked beautiful. And the next day I got on the phone with Richard, Tom's partner, and he says, "Uh, your mother's dress should have been your dress. (laughs) And I thought... (laughs) Okay, well, the wedding was yesterday. <laughs> uh, so that always stuck with me. Can't change it now. <laughs> my mother looked amazing at, at my wedding. So yes, that was there was no changing that. We it was great though. And so Tom and Tom was another uh, sort of anecdote from my wedding is he was saying, So what colors are you thinking about um, when we were working with the event decorator? And I said, well, I like blue. And he goes, no, you cannot have blue bridesmaids. They're going to be pink. And I said, well, I hate the color pink. And he said, well, then we'll call it blush. 
And <laughs> and sure enough, my bridesmaids wore blush and they looked beautiful. And he was totally right okay. about what was going to look good in a picture. So <laughs> he was a saint. And he did the same for my sister. And I think he's probably never done and will never do another wedding dress again. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that was his, his swan song with wedding gowns. I would exactly. imagine. I love it. Exactly. Aww. Well, Ricky, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. What We Wore is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.